Welcome back to another market opening live stream. Let's go ahead and, and today get started with this individual bashing the Fed for suggesting Fed would be transitory and suggests the next move. Let's listen in. On rates, they seem hell-bent on changing the labor market, right, to lower wages. And I think that's, that's awful. I think what the benefit of a tight labor market is wage growth. We wanted the middle class to, and the lower income people to do well and to push them into unemployment. So I've been focusing on like, how are they gonna succeed? There's the jolt state of the jobs that are open. There's 10 million, 10 and a half million jobs in November. That's normally four and a half to five. So they have to get through five million job openings have to go away. And then they have to reduce unemployment by a point or two. And that's another three million jobs. With interest rates, you're gonna fine tune the economy so that you can somehow figure out how to lose eight million jobs. So I went back and looked at 07, 08, 09. Right, where were the job losses in the great financial crisis? We lost a million four manufacturing jobs. And we're gonna lose some manufacturing jobs because rates have gone up and, and things like cars and everything are less uh, dishwashers. But a million construction jobs were lost. That was a number two category. You're gonna see that this time, but you haven't seen it yet because I'm building, I'm, all real estate people and all corporations are finishing their plants. We didn't stop construction because he, in, he, he increased interest rates a quarter point. We're just point. not doing new ones. We're not doing new ones. We just sat down to look at a project we have in Fort Lauderdale and said it doesn't pencil, we're gonna just wait. So as these projects finish, you will see massive layoffs in the commercial construction markets. And companies who delay the investment in plants, you saw your Chevron buyback, they could be drilling wells, they're just gonna buy back stock because the cost of capital has gone up. So he will get that, but he should be focusing, and the government should be foc focusing on increasing the supply of labor. Because uh, in conversations with the Fed- I mean, but that's not Fed, really something the Fed can do. Yes, there, the Fed would, can help there. So, well, politicians can help first fix immigration. Immigration would be the way to- We're 200,000 immigrants. We used to do a million one. You gotta fix immigration. I was in Washington on Monday. I mean, the both sides of the- All right, I think we've got an idea here of this guy's opinion. So the uh, he's not wrong. Immigration would, would definitely help with uh, uh, with with the job market and, and eating up some of those job openings. But uh, what's uh, fascinating is this, this idea that, hey, look, a lot of companies are trying to bang out the rest of their construction uh, for either uh, developments that they've already agreed to, either new construction homes or office buildings or whatever. What happens after that boom of construction is over? Layoffs. He could be right on the money with that, especially as the real estate market has slowed down. Though we'll talk about the real estate market a little bit more later. Uh, today we have earnings coming out from American Airlines, Valero, MasterCard, JetBlue, Southwest, Nokia, and Blackstone, as well as Sherwin-Williams and the Dow Chemical Company. Uh, so we'll get some insights into really the uh, real estate consumer. Uh, on uh, on what's going on with Sherwin Williams and Dow, whether that's commercial or residential, we'll also get insights on uh, that travel market. What I'm really watching for in the travel market between American JetBlue Southwest. Once we get those earnings calls, I would be looking for any sign that these companies are getting primed to start a price war. Think Tesla of autos. It's only going to take one of these airlines to do uh, larger price cuts across the board, and I would expect all of them will follow. That's something that uh, United Airlines actually already alluded to in their earnings call, that if somebody else cuts, they are ready to cut as well. Uh, so the price war or the seeds of the price war are being planted for the airlines. 
Uh, and we'll see. These companies are highly indebted, uh, massive, massive interest expenses. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, until they have a price war, at least hopefully they can continue to pay, off, uh, pay, pay down some debts. But until then, get some... Uh, you get a pretty competitive environment, so we'll see what happens. Uh, later today, you'll also, uh, since this morning, we'll be getting MasterCard. Uh, it's almost like it's tradition. We'll be getting Visa later, followed by uh, Intel uh, and uh, Robert Half, L3 Harris, uh, and a few other companies as well. Uh, so we'll get a lot of consumer data today from earnings reports. We're also uh, getting economic data today, which should be fascinating. The first one we're going to get uh, is actually at uh, 5.30 a.m., so that'll actually be during this podcast. We'll get that in about 52 minutes. We'll get the annualized quarter-over-quarter quarter GDP numbers. Survey says 2.6%. Prior release was 3.2%. We'll get some numbers on personal consumption. We'll get uh, core PCE. We will get advanced goods, wholesale inventories, retail inventories, initial jobless claims, continuing claims, durable good orders, capital good orders, new home sales, and new home sales activity month over month. Then uh, we'll also be going into or heading into the Kansas City Manufacturing Report. Uh, and then tomorrow we'll get some more information on uh, the uh, Fed's favorite number, which is the PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Read, which comes out tomorrow along with uh, inflation expectations via the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiments Read. So we'll get a lot of data over the next two days. On the 31st, which is when the Federal Reserve meeting actually begins, we'll also be getting ECI, that's the Employment Cost in, uh, uh, Read, uh, Employment Cost Index. Uh, these are all important numbers leading into that Jan 31 to Feb 1 meeting. Uh, we'll take a look here at five-year break-evens. We obviously have uh, a lot of excitement uh, following Tesla earnings. I think they, as I mentioned yesterday, I really think that uh, a, a, there were a lot of folks waiting on the sidelines uh, to, to really get into the stock market again to see, okay, what, what do we think earnings are going to do? I think this Q4 earnings set uh, could end up being this substantial catalyst that, uh, that actually tries to induce people to get back into the market where people see, oh, look, things just aren't that bad. Institutions cover shorts. Institutions maybe start nibbling again on stocks. Retail starts buying again on stocks. Could be very interesting what we see. Now, whether it ends up being a bear market rally or not, TBD, I think that is ultimately going to come down to whether or not we have a uh, black swan style catalyst. So uh, then we have uh, five-year break-even sitting at 2.35. Uh, unfortunately, these keep ticking up slightly. The Fed wants to see these declining, not ticking up. Uh, so uh, not, not fantastic in that, term, uh, in that direction. Either way, the stock market mostly green. You've got S&P futures up about a quarter of a percent, NASDAQ futures up 0.64, Dow flat. Ten-year Treasury, again, it's holding 3.491%, so basically 3.5%. Been sitting at 3.5% for quite a while. And uh, there's an expectation that uh, 3.5% could end up holding uh, for... Uh, for, for potentially the rest of the decade. Now, I, I think that's a little extreme. I, I don't think the rest of the decade is what we're looking at. But uh, potentially for the next few months until the Federal Reserve relaxes, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, Comcast beat on its numbers this morning. Uh, excited to though, see some of these others uh, come in, especially the earnings calls. I think the earnings calls are going to be the most entertaining. 
Uh, so we'll review those as they come out uh, later today. So uh, let's get started with, uh, we have, uh, let's do a quick look, a quick check here at uh, the order of things we're going to cover today. First, we're going to cover uh, a little bit about a lot of U.S. households turning into sellers. I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Uh, I want to talk a, a bit about advertising, chat GPT, some more insights here. We'll talk a little bit about the Fed and the potential U-turn, talk about the potential not U-turn. Also talk about uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, as well as some more insights into uh, what's going on in the real estate world. So we'll get started with uh, some of that information. Uh, the first that I'd like to start with is uh, U.S. sellers potentially becoming, or, or uh, U.S. households being stock sellers. Now, I'll never forget when I was, uh, oh gosh, in high school, uh, and uh, it was around 2007, and I was just getting ready to graduate high school, started working on my real estate license in high school, I ended up getting my real estate license at 18. Uh, I'll never forget, uh, in, in 2009, around this time, my uh, uh, family members were dumping their 401ks because they had realized that the valuation had fallen so much. It was almost kind of like they'd never been into stocks. They're sort of just blind to the idea of, of the stock market. And it was almost as if all of a sudden you had folks decide, oh, well, I'm going to go look and see what my retirement is. And oh, no, it's down like 40%. Well, dang, if it's down 40%, I may as well go and sell. Because if I sell now, at least I'll still have the other 60%. And sure enough, many of these folks, uh, and, and uh, not just uh, people that were close to me, but but also just you saw the story repeat itself over and over again, were, were selling essentially at the bottom of the market. Uh, and as difficult as it is to time the market perfectly, I think it's very clear when markets tell you, okay, we're near a top of a cycle, it's time to buy. Okay, we're near a bottom of a cycle, or sorry, we're near a top of a cycle, it's time to sell. We're near a bottom of a cycle, it's time to buy, right? That's pretty logical. I think we could say that pretty clearly, for example, with the real estate cycle. Uh, and the real estate cycle is something that I've been teaching probably for about 12 years, uh, originally in coffee shops and at open houses to folks. I would draw the, uh, or I actually had a picture of the real estate cycle up, uh, and it was, it was sort of customized for real estate. But uh, folks were so worried about this idea of, oh my gosh, you know, well, what if home prices continue to fall? And the, the most simple and I think comforting concept that you should think of as an investor is not to try to be perfect, to sell right here at the end of 2005 and try to buy right here in November of 2011 when the housing market bottomed. Uh, and, and this applies to stocks as well, right? But instead, the goal is to try to draw a line through the middle here and try to do your best to buy uh, over here, right? To buy here and to ultimately sell here. Uh, that is actually a lot easier to do. We can time that the market in this sense by looking at the macro cycle. Uh, this is one of the reasons why in November of 2021, over here, I started shorting ARK K. Wish I held on to those shorts longer. It's also why in January of 2022, I'd say probably on this side, I sold my entire portfolio uh, and, and removed uh, what I thought were, were some of the most riskiest positions altogether as we were in this sort of macro cycle. And it wasn't to say that, oh, we could perfectly time the bottom. It's to say that, we know we're at a sort of a macro peak, right? And now I would argue that we're probably 
somewhere near a macro bottom. Now that might be here, or we might be here. I personally believe we're probably on the left side, unless we have some form of black swan event that we haven't actually seen occur yet. Uh, which means if we are on the left side, we're certainly, well, either way, whether we're on the left or the right, black swan event or not, I believe we're certainly, almost certainly, I would say, on the bottom half uh, of this cycle. I, I think that's pretty evident with, with some of the uh, uh, declines and, and the shifts in economic data that we've seen. We'd really have to see a U-turn uh, in inflation to the dark side or some kind of black swan to suggest that we're not in the bottom half of the economic cycle, uh, the macro cycle here. Or you'd have to really believe that, look, you know, maybe inflation's going to pop up again and things are going to get even worse. But then you wonder, hey, does that mean we're just right here? And okay, fine. So things are going to get a little bit worse, right? The point is, we're not at euphoria anymore. And my belief is, forget about trying to perfectly time the top or the bottom. Time the macro cycle and look at it as an individual and say, look, we're obviously in a difficult and recessionary style of time. Why not try to uh, take advantage of this uh, environment, work harder now, make more money now, build more wealth now by investing more now. So basically what you're doing by investing more now is you're building more potential wealth, right? You work harder now, you take your money, you buy more quantity of exposure to either prep for real estate or buying uh, equities or maybe you're buying bonds, whatever. Uh, and then that way you're rewarded as we enter the upswing of that cycle whenever that cycle comes. I personally think that is actually quite easy for anyone to do. It's it's not difficult to know. Okay, when when are we when are we turning on a macro cycle to the dark side, and and when are we when are things getting better, right? Yeah, that that I think are those are the things that I think we will end up having shown as true between November and January as sort of our, our top uh, for the, the, the peak of the cycle. And uh, hopefully somewhere between October, uh, certain stocks even as, as early as July, somewhere between July and October, who knows that could have been a bottom, maybe you get a double bottom, who knows. Uh, but let's take a brief look over here. So uh, this is where uh, the, the reason I started with this is because there are so many research pieces discussing the differences between what investors are doing and how investors are positioning themselves. And, and it, almost daily, I read content uh, about how uh, investors are just in, in such different positions. Uh, for example, here you've got uh, you've got this argument that the current equity rally we're seeing is due to systemic buying and hedge fund short covering, which may have legs. And there are always so many reasons for why the market could be going up, right? Uh, in the short term, I actually agree. I think uh, I think in 2022, uh, it was easy to make money just shorting the market. You could sell covered calls and milk money. You could short the market and milk money. It was easy. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I think that actually for a lot of hedge funds leaves them under allocated to equities in, in uh, what, you know, what could eventually be a sustained rally. And then what happens, whether it's hedge funds or individuals, they'll end up saying, oh, don't worry, the latest bounce is just a bear market rally and it'll plummet to new lows again, maybe, or it doesn't. And then all of a sudden they look back and they're like, wow, the NASDAQ's up 40%, you know, whatever from, from where it was. Uh, and they're like, dang, well, well, now everything's just overpriced. I'll wait for the double dip. And then that double dip never ends up coming. Uh, that's, that's a danger or risk that individuals run into, I believe. And, and so do institutions. Uh, but uh, here's, here's an interesting 
uh, piece on the difference on how individuals and institutions are positioned, they do say that short interest has actually halved for uh, the fourth quarter for European equities. However, in the United States, we still sit at elevated levels of short interest. Now, I find that very interesting that we're still sitting at elevated levels of short interest in the United States because at some point, those shorts are going to have to cover when, when, when movements in the, the equity market continue to, to prove that they're going to trend uh, in, in a positive direction. Uh, in contrast, mutual funds, rather than remaining short, are long cash and have actually been dumping equities in recent months. As a result, their equity beta is close to lows. Beta is, is a measure of, of the difference of your portfolio uh, to, uh, to, to an index, usually like uh, the S&P 500. Similarly, the uh, bid from retail investors has waned, with U.S. households turning to outright sellers of stocks. Think about how weird this is. You're potentially sitting at, uh, I would potentially say, the bottom 20% of the macro cycle, Again, no guarantees whether we are on the left or right, but the bottom 20% would probably look something like this of the macro cycle, right? Again, it means we could potentially go a little lower or potentially means we've already lifted off of the bottom. Nobody knows that, uh, but we, we do have high confidence that we're on the bottom half, potentially even within that bottom 20%. Yet at that same time, look at how investors are positioned. In my opinion, it's ludicrous. You have households, seller, being sellers. You have mutual funds, long cash, and you have hedge funds in the United States. I guess I should write three. There we go. One, two, three. <laughs> there we go. And you have hedge funds in the United States still relatively short. So think about, I mean, there's a reason why Morgan Stanley has said there is so much cash on the sidelines waiting to be put to work. And when you see a report like this from Barclays, you kind of reiterate that argument that, well, yeah, if households are sellers, mutual funds are dumping and they're long cash and hedge funds are short, well, either they think we really are going into some form of double dip or the bottom still isn't here or they're trying to be perfect or they're making a big mistake. Uh, so that's something quite interesting, I believe, for watching your own individual portfolio. Uh, they do believe that currently uh, this is the short interest that we're seeing in the United States. Uh, it is a chart here on the right side. Short squeeze in the United States is less clear to us. In other words, we've seen short covering here in the United in, in the Eurozone, but look at this. You could see almost no drop in short interest through December uh, in the United States and into the early part of January. TBD, how uh, that has moved in the last uh, in the last week here, uh, but a lot of information about how uh, ultimately exposure to equity uh, is is by no means uh, high or excessive. If anything, it's low. Uh, so I think that's that's quite fascinating. So uh, we'll see how things move here. Cash and treasuries are catching up with equity flows. We've got cash and corporate credit in demand year to date. Okay, so plenty of other charts and information from Barclays. But uh, something here to consider, are we potentially near the bottom of that, uh, of, of that macro cycle? And again, for me, I think the big question is, where, where's the black swan? And I suppose the idea is that 
we, nobody knows where that black swan is, right? But what we do know is there's a lot of repositioning happening uh, in investments, uh, whether it's, again, hedge funds going uh, for, for short positions or mutual funds being long cash. One of the things that I'm paying attention to, actually, is advertising. And we know that advertising is expected to slow by 5% in 2023. The consensus in 2022 was actually a, uh, a, a slow down, or sorry, a growth of about uh, 10%. Uh, and that is now slowing to about 5% in 2023 and potentially falling as um, or, or rising then again to 8.5% growth in 2024. Now, the reason I bring this up is because personally, there's a position that I hold that I think is actually going to really benefit from this movement in advertising. So, so if you look closely at this here, you see advertising in consensus boomed uh, about 21.6% in 2021. 9.9% in 2022, only 5% in 2023, and then 8.5% in 2024. So not actually going negative on advertising. Uh, but what's remarkable is even though advertising is slowing down, you have this sort of rejiggering expected in where advertising spend is going. And one of the biggest markets that it really seems to be benefiting from this or sort of remarking uh, or redesigning of advertising spend budgets is the U.S. connected TV advertising sector. You can see here it is expected to have tripled from 2020 to 2024 from about $10.9 billion in 2020 to 17 in 21, 21 in 22, 20 nearly 7 in 2023, and then 31 in 2024, according to eMarketer. Now, what's fascinating about that is I think there's one play that is worth paying attention to, uh, and that is the trade desk. So if you are thinking about that macro cycle and you're looking where are stocks and positions that, uh, you know, maybe they've been beaten up over the last year, trade desk down about 20% over the last uh, year. Uh, and, and how are companies positioned to potentially take advantage of that shift in advertising, well, Trade Desk might be one of those to consider for that sort of bottom of the macro cycle play. Again, not calling an exact bottom, but something to pay attention to. Now, one of the reasons we're seeing an explosion in connected TV is because Disney is introducing advertisements via connected TV to their platform. Uh, and this follows, obviously, Netflix's move into connected TV advertising. Now, connected TV via Microsoft, um, via Netflix, excuse me, is provided by um, by Microsoft. However, connected TV for uh, companies that, that Disney owns, like Hulu, are uh, provided by uh, Trade Desk, and we expect Trade Desk to be heavily involved in providing ads for uh, Disney+. Plus. So I think there's a, a pretty uh, substantially exciting opportunity in Trade Desk. And when I look at the actual fundamentals uh, of that particular company, uh, I, I kind of like them. Take a look at just some of these notes here. Some of these notes, by the way, are notes that I've put together with course members. Oftentimes in the mornings, we'll do course member analysis on certain stocks, either that you're looking at or that I'm looking at. Uh, we'll either do this on real estate, we'll do this on stocks, TA, you name it. Uh, and you can join those and get lifetime access for those using that final coupon code link down below, which expires January 30th, which is just in a few days. Go to metkevin.com join 
to learn more. But take a look at the statement of cash flows for Trade Desk. This is from their uh, earnings report ending September 30th, 2022. We've got $1.3 billion available in free cash. We'll see that on their balance sheet. We're adding about $125 million in free cash from operations, which is incredible. This is an incredible cash flow here. If we look at free cash flow, we're well above 90 mil. This is a smaller company, of course, but revenue in the last three months of 2022 growing at 30%. Now they did have a one-time boost of GNA for their, well, I mean, there could be future boosts here, but they had GNA explode here in, uh, in, in 2022, uh, in the three months ending in September relative to 2021. I actually think that's a positive catalyst now, you might think that's crazy, but most folks aren't paying attention to the fact that this G&A boost was actually, in my opinion, a one, well, I look at it, it is heavily based on a, a one-time CEO stock comp payment. In other words, we're not expecting to see that kind of G&A expense boost again for future quarters, which could actually boost EPS substantially from where it sits now. It's positive. Uh, it's been positive. Uh, it was positive in 2021. Uh, there was, it was slightly negative for the first nine months of 2022. Uh, this uh, the stock comp uh, payment didn't help, uh, but uh, positive here again in 2021, positive 2022, Q3. And so in my opinion, while, while we're kind of on the edge there of, of uh, profitability, it's a company that's growing revenues phenomenally. Uh, and uh, once some of these one-time expenses fall by the wayside, EPS growth could look pretty dang phenomenal. Uh, and it's a player in that connected TV space. It's really, really killing it. Uh, so so here are just some notes that I wrote uh, about that uh, CEO expense, platform operation costs, 17.7% of revenue. Uh, and uh, they've got pretty decent margins, bringing income uh, from operations uh, to about 26% uh, of, of their top line. Not bad. So uh, then we have... Uh, let's see here. Uh, this is uh, this is just an example of, of potentially a company to look at uh, near. Uh, well, I'm, I mean, most most of the the tech style and advertising style plays have really fallen by the wayside in this macro cycle. So I'm I'm really paying attention to what do I think is potentially positioned for that bottom of macro cycle. Uh, Trade desk could be one of those. So it's definitely one that I'm paying attention to, uh, and uh, I think it deserves a high allocation in. Uh, in, in ETFs, uh, whoever may be managing ETFs out there. Pretty fascinating. So um, that gives us a little bit of insight into ads, a little bit of insight into sellers, where we might be in the macro cycle. Curious to know what you think in terms of where we are in the macro cycle. So leave a comment down below on that. Next, uh, worth uh, making a few notes here on ChatGPT, not to be confused with ChatGBT, which is much easier to pronounce than ChatGPT. Can't get over that one. Uh, Microsoft's uh, uh, obviously uh, working on their $10 billion investment into open AI. But what I really think is most fascinating about this is the amount of money that is going to potentially go into GPUs. This is another potential uh, area to pay attention to. You look at GPU revenue forecasts, you see uh, a little bit of actually a stall there in 2022. Uh, where GPU uh, growth has the sort of compounded annual growth rate of 14%, measuring from 2017 to 2026. 20, uh, and we see billions of dollars of revenue here. We can see between 2021 and 2022, revenue is almost flat 
sitting somewhere here around uh, what do we have? Uh, 20, 21, uh, maybe billion here in GPU revenue forecast. Uh, however, we see that exploding again via estimates in uh, by over 20% in 2023 via estimates, uh, and then steady growth all the way through about 2026. So uh, a lot of excitement uh, also in the chip space for potential GPU growth, especially with uh, companies like OpenAI maybe driving uh, reinvestments into chips. I did find the uh, server refresh cycle article I was talking about yesterday. Uh, I had it saved, just put it in the wrong place. Uh, and really it was an argument that the more companies invest in AI, the more we're going to shorten the replacement cycle for, tri uh, for, for chipsets. Uh, however, you might see more of an investment also into hyperscale cloud. Obviously hyperscale providers being companies like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon. Uh, there's a belief that Google might actually, according to Bloomberg, have an advantage over Microsoft in distributing servers for AI. So server space or, or server power or compute power for AI over Microsoft. Uh, and then of course, uh, NVIDIA seen as a, a substantial player for that uh, GPU push for uh, data centers. Keep in mind, every single query for chat GPT, so if you've used it and you've, you've prompted uh, chat GPT with something, every single query is estimated to cost about seven cents of compute. So uh, somebody, that money obviously goes somewhere, right? And that money is going to cloud providers and it's going to uh, chip providers like NVIDIA and AMD. And it's trickling through to chip manufacturers like Warren Buffett's favorite investment, Taiwan Semiconductors. Uh, Taiwan Semiconductors has 92% market share of the advanced microchip uh, sector. Of course, then you have a lot of folks that look at companies that also manufacture. You're kind of going through the supply chain line here of open AI, right? You're looking at, okay, well, if AI is great, then AI is probably good for a company that has an investment in it like Microsoft, but then it's also good for server providers like Google. But if it's good for server providers, it's probably good for chip providers like NVIDIA and AMD probably more heavily, heavily uh, NVIDIA. But if it's good for chip designers, then it's good for chip manufacturers like Taiwan Semiconductors. But if it's good for chip uh, uh, designers and manufacturers, then it's probably also good for the companies that make the manufacturing machines like ASML and LAM Research who just reported uh, pretty pretty solid earnings yesterday. Honestly, they have a phenomenal balance sheet. We looked at that yesterday at LAM Research. Phenomenal balance sheet, phenomenal cash flow, really impressive. So when you're thinking about investments into uh, you know a space like Chat GPT, really, uh, you you could get a basket of uh, the entire uh, a market that may have pricing power as a result of artificial intelligence. I'm actually personally not the biggest fan of looking at profitless. Uh, tech companies that that say you know hey you know invest in us because we have AI, uh, for example, I'm I'm very gun shy about a company like C3 AI. I'm not super enthusiastic about uh, a company like Snowflake, uh, even though I know they're expanding like crazy. I am worried about the SaaS business model still not having reached a bottom. A lot of layoffs happening in tech, which is going to lead us to less seats less substantial growth at some of these companies. 
And I hate to say it, but some of the valuations uh, for software companies are insane right now. Uh, just as an example, Bill.com trading for a hundred times PE. I mean, you're looking at peg ratios that are three to six X uh, for some of the growth some of these companies are expecting uh, and valuations that are very sensitive even beyond a peg ratio to falling. Any company that tends to have a high PE ratio, no matter what the peg ratio is, uh, can, can oftentimes be a sell uh, in recessionary environments because it's just it's it, it's simple for them uh, to it's simple for institutions to argue oh it's a high PE ratio sell uh, but even a company like Snowflake which which yeah is expected to have uh, a positive uh, EPS this year uh, expected to be positive about 23 cents by the end of the year expecting to be positive by about 50 cents which is great growth I mean that's doubling on EPS right but you're trading for 144 bucks with 50 cents uh, of earnings for the year. You're trading for 288 times as a multiple for Snowflake. That's insane, absolutely insane. Uh, I, I mean, even even if you gave them a double for growth which, uh, on EPS, which is not sustainable, you're still trading for a three peg with a 288 valuation uh, and the likelihood that more money has to be raised. Now, a rising tide will eventually lift all ships. But if I potentially had to structure something uh, that I thought was was really exposed to the pricing power of of uh, of AI and uh, ChatGPT, probably my my biggest investments would would be companies like uh, Nvidia, uh, AMD, Taiwan Semiconductors. I would consider ASML. I would consider Lam Research. Although I have to put a little asterisk on the manufacturers because a concern about the manufacturers is that maybe companies like Taiwan Semiconductors have already bought a lot of equipment in the last year and that maybe there could be a slowdown in growth going forward for some of these manufacturers. However, ASML did just report and what they report? They report that they still expect manufacturing equipment sales to actually increase by 25% in 2023. So my thesis isn't actually being super well co corroborated to say maybe stay away from those equipment manufacturers. But right there, these are uh, these are five potentially great stocks uh, for investing in AI. Uh, if you then wanted to look at cloud distribution, a simple ex a simple exposure to Google, Amazon, uh, Facebook, uh, and Microsoft uh, could be a consideration. Now, uh, I do have concerns about all of the, well, a lot of uh, Facebook's cash flow going into things like the metaverse. I'm not the biggest fan of uh, virtual reality. Even uh, Apple expects their virtual reality headsets to just be a loss leader for other products. So with Facebook, you do have a bit of, a, of an anchor that some of your cash flow might be going to, uh, you know, the future of the metaverse. So you have to be comfortable with that as an investor. Facebook stock has actually done decently over the last six months on, in its recovery. Amazon, you have to be careful that on, on, on their side, you're seeing a lot of cash flow get thrown into how can we get quicker delivery timeframes to continue to be competitive uh, in, in our fulfillment networks. And I think that's a very expensive endeavor. Uh, and, and so maybe that makes Microsoft and Google slightly more pure plays for uh, cloud compute. Uh, that would be your Microsoft Azure, your Google Cloud Platform. So look how what now all of a sudden we're, we're potentially building this, this portfolio of companies that maybe have pricing power around artificial intelligence without being exposed to the insane multiples of uh, 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 multiple exposures of, uh, of AI, of strictly AI, right? Uh, which is, is heavily exposed to uh, software service companies that are extremely expensive right now. 
Uh, I mean, even companies that I like in the cybersecurity space, like uh, CrowdStrike and Cloudflare, great companies, but pricey, very pricey right now. But uh, either way, uh, maybe you introduce a small exposure to companies like that, right? That could be a consideration. So maybe, maybe if you're building a portfolio and you say, hey, I really want to be exposed to uh, uh, chat GPT, uh, how could I build a portfolio of say 11 stocks around that? What kind of stocks would I consider? Well, uh, I, I on screen here, I just kind of slap this together while we were talking here. Uh, and I wrote just sort of in order of, of, of something that might look like a decent portfolio. Uh, you've got uh, number one, well, just reading them off in order here. NVIDIA, AMD, Taiwan Semiconductors, ASML, LAM Research, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Meta, and then maybe Snowflake at the bottom. Right, so th this, is, this is an example of how you could build a portfolio. And then what you could do is you could maybe provide a lower allocation for some of the, uh, the more cloud providers, uh, or sorry, not cloud providers, the, the more uh, pure AI plays than maybe you would be uh, allocating uh, to some of the others, right? Uh, yeah, and, and too bad you can't ask ChatGPT for stock picks because A, the data is for ChatGPT still stuck in 2011. Uh, but even beyond that, uh, you know, you have to be pretty tricky with how you try to prompt it for stock info since it likes to tell you. Uh, it doesn't want to give financial advice. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, look, the more AI blows up, the more we actually expect that uh, we are going to see the chip world have to reinvest in itself uh, to stay competitive. Now, you have to be careful because big tech is laying off a lot of individuals. So again, with layoffs in big tech, you're probably going to see more pain where? In... Uh, in software service. But what does that free up? If you lay off white collar workers, what do you have more of? Well, potentially you have more cash flow. And if you have more cash flow, what can you do more of in a recessionary environment? Well, hopefully you do what I regularly suggest. And that is in a recessionary environment, you invest. That I think is extremely exciting. Invest, invest, invest. Uh, and so this is where, if I uh, pop on over to uh, a piece that was sent over uh, from Bloomberg, somebody sent me this. They sent me, look at this, AI infrastructure spending poised to stay elevated. There's a long runway for companies to replace their legacy servers installed base with AI accelerators. Now, honestly, I think that's kind of remarkable because on uh, like I feel like I, I still... And I know servers obviously have been around for, you know, uh, well, like 50 years, probably more widely over the last 20 years, obviously, since the dot-com bubble. Uh, but it's weird to me to think that, all right, time to upgrade, but, uh, you know, all the servers. But then again, you know, I, I, I try to relate and I, and I look at my, uh, my uh, Apple computers, for example. And maybe this is just Apple screwing us, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, this is how they get their pricing power, right? But uh, you go pick up a 2018 Apple laptop, uh, which I have a few of. I have, I have a, like three or four 2018, uh, 2017, 18, 19 laptops sitting around from, from uh, uh, well, previous employees or, 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 you know, us having upgraded. And I've, I've used some of these for just other purposes. I turn them into like little back server backups and that. They're terrible. 
it's incredible how, how miserably slow they have gotten. Uh, and I think it's just relative to what we're used to here in 2023 now. And so it's really incredible. So when I think about that as an individual, I'm like, yeah, no kidding. Servers are going to need upgrades, uh, whether those are new hard drives or new network area storage bays. Uh, NVIDIA has seen rapid adoption of its GPUs for data centers uh, beyond its customer use cases for gaming and Bitcoin mining. Beyond that, right? We're moving beyond that. Autonomous driver is another secular driver for GPUs, but ChatGPT has the potential to further unlock new computing use cases. Folks, there is so much money in artificial intelligence that you don't actually have to bet on the artificial intelligence company like ChatGPT, which is not a public company. It is not a company you can invest into, and it's really only a company you could get sort of ancillary access to. But uh, it, it is it is a, a movement uh, where the additional free cash flow that is now going to go into artificial intelligence uh, uh, research and investments is probably going to pump quite substantially uh, the, the uh, distribution and operating systems for AI at massive companies throughout uh, not just the United States but the world, uh, and I think it's 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 a win for all of the companies that I mentioned. Uh, you know, you've also got companies like uh, Tesla heavily exposed to AI. Uh, the more they double down on AI, the more you're going to see uh, a movement towards uh, uh, chip investments at uh, Tesla. Now, of course, Tesla or Tesla designs a lot of their own chips, uh, but uh, at any point. Uh, that they need to purchase uh, chip manufacturing equipment uh, or third-party contract manufacturer chips like NVIDIA or AMD do. Guess who's a beneficiary of that? Well, potentially companies like ASML, LAM Research, Taiwan Semiconductors, right? Apple investing in AI, who benefits? Well, substantially Taiwan Semiconductors. The more Apple invests in AI, the more we see uh, their chips designed by Apple and get manufactured by uh, by companies like Taiwan Semiconductor. So personally, very excited. I am not as excited, although it might be worth uh, the potential exposure into companies like an Intel uh, or an IBM, although these companies have, have been seen as uh, um, potentially not innovating as quickly as uh, some of the, the other companies that we've mentioned. So it's something to pay attention to is that maybe, maybe you have an exposure to sort of the rebirth of an Intel and IBM. And maybe therefore in a portfolio, if you have an Intel and IBM, what you're able to do is put them in as as maybe a, uh, a 12 or 13th position uh, in sort of a chat GPT allocation. Uh, and, uh, and and you see those maybe as a little bit more value-esque uh, in, in the whole bucket. So obviously, I can't advise you how to ideally uh, build your portfolio. But at least for building a portfolio for myself, these are, these are considerations that I have. The nice thing about stocks is you don't have to say, oh, it's all in on one stock or it's all in on another stock. Uh, and oh, I'd never touch you know a certain stock with a 10-foot pole. You could just allocate less money to stocks that you believe in but have concerns over valuation, right? Uh, that way, if you're wrong, at least you have a stake. Uh, and if you're right and the valuation compresses, well, then you could really start building that stake by adding more of an allocation. Uh, and this really goes back to the idea of how difficult it is to, to, to time perfect uh, tops and bottoms, and it's better that when things are a little frothy to under allocate, and when things are uh, pained to over allocate, right? And then that way you you just like uh, adjust that way. Uh, so uh, I personally am very very excited uh, uh, about uh, Chat GPT 
and uh, on almost a daily basis, I'm, I'm looking at how can we rebalance uh, uh, portfolios in, in a way that uh, give us the best potential allocation to uh, the future, uh, well, essentially future growth in, in the ad space. Uh, and AI space, rather, no, not the ad space. Ad space is still also good. And I think uh, AI and compute spend will, will, will heavily increase in, in even the ad sector uh, and, and the compute power for pro providing connected TV advertising or digital advertising, but but certainly less so. Ad, ads would be uh, uh, certainly less so than, than AI. But AI, very, very exciting. Keep in mind, even Elon Musk yesterday mentioned that AI might be the, uh, essentially, uh, well, that Tesla may be the, the, the leader in artificial intelligence. Of course, he might be a little bit biased. Anyway, some thoughts here. If you found those helpful, make sure to subscribe, share the video as always. And of course, check out those programs on Building Your Wealth link down below. Coupon code expires the final one in four days. And you've got a, you got a price guarantee over there, folks. Three-month price guarantee uh, that uh, you'll be getting the best price probably ever. Uh, but at bare minimum for three months. All right, let's listen in over here. Having a soft landing, if he stops, you can have a, a, a mild recession is fine. I mean, it'll be fine. You don't destroy all these manufacturing jobs. We, we bring back, we onshore, we, we, get, we, we, we fix supply chains. He'll be, he'll be good. I'd be bullish. If we keep this up, and obviously the political but no, gridlock, but the, and don't focus on things that matter in Washington, I would be... If rates are higher, maybe we'll stop. That's what I'm saying. If, if we go right back to where you want to go, no, then we'll be I, like, okay, I, I well, just, it's not a trillion in interest. We're back down to 300 billion in interest expense. But if, if we really are spending a trillion we should every year... Rates, but two and a half percent lower. What, what, how do we rates. finally... What, how can we spend on other things if our debt services is so high? And it's, if it goes uh, we, to 35 we, we trillion... We need a plan to reduce the long-term deficit. But here, here's a good piece of good news. Healthcare uh, initiatives are going to change the, the, the death rates or incidence of many diseases. And so, so social security, unemployment and benefits, that is probably overstated. We're going to have such incredible medical breakthroughs over the long term. And that's a big positive. Rents well, coming down. Let me just ask, because you've built up, I think, 115,000 apartments over the last seven years or so. You see rents in your own place coming down? Because you, you guys had some significant so, rent hikes last year. Yeah, we all did. The whole nation did in every market. And of course, I think rents were up like 20% across the United States. It was a pandemic. I don't know what happened. I mean, we, none of us modeled it. It just right. went bananas. The, uh, and it's actually released some pretty nefarious forces now. It's, you have people wanting rent control. It's very politically popular. And I fast forward to Mumbai, go to India, where you have spectacular British buildings that were built by the British that are completely decaying because they put in rent controls. Nobody increased rents, so nobody takes care of the buildings, so they rot. Yep. And you know, the federal, they, they mean well, but every time you put in rent control, you, do, you, know, you wind up with very bad housing stock. And we have a five million housing shortage. So nobody's going to build affordable housing unless they give you really aggressive tax. And that's the other thing. I mean, he wants inflation to go down, but he, he's killing the construction of single-family homes and increasing the lack of supply. So we need a balance. And, and I'm not saying we want zero interest rates, Joe. We just want a, a positive yield curve that doesn't dissuade long-term investment. So right. companies, I'm buying the two-year. Like, I own it. I never owned any of it. Like, that's not a bad place to hang out. 
for while the world sort of sorts itself out, we figure out if they're going to go over the edge or they're going to be reasonable. And look, this is the fastest increase in rates in history. M2, our money supply, has never been negative in 70 years. I mean, this is a tight, tight financial market out there. Liquidity is tight. I'm not saying that the banks are wonderful, by the way. I, I wasn't picking on the banks. Right. But they got the OCC so on, all over the, them saying, the stop lending, stop lending, don't grow your balance sheets. So it's not the banks, it's how much the, the regulators. In, everyone means well, I assume. Pie chart, how much <laughs> is, in the, is in the two-year for you? Pardon me? You said you never touched the two-year before in your whole life. Yeah, but I've moved cash and, and I've gotten some liquidity and moved it into six months, one year, and two years for a while. I'll come out of it as soon as I think the dust clears. I think you're sort of in a... Well, when's that dust clear? And we keep talking about a recession I, so come John, the end of this John year. So Gray said this thing I agree right. with, which is if you're in business, there's two things you're looking at, both the base rate, which we know the Fed controls, and the spread that we borrow at. The spreads have doubled, too. Right. The first thing that will happen, like triple A's, for example, you, they used to cost you a point, or less than a point, over base rates. They're two, or they're double. As soon as people feel like the Fed is done, I think spreads will come in. That will help. Mm -hmm. You're getting paid too much for triple A's today. And then he'll, he will have to lower base rates because the economy is going to show its... You know, what, what I believe, and I just want to be so clear, we just heard this individual say, hey, I'm waiting for the dust to clear. I've allocated a little bit more to cash. I, I really believe this, and I have believed this since January of last year. It has been a year of, of believing this. I really believe, and I could be wrong, so it's not a guarantee, but at least I'm taking a position, okay? <laughs> I really believe there's a chance... The stock market cycle has bottomed, or will bottom rather, before the Federal Reserve officially signals the policy of having U-turned. And the reason I believe that uh, is I believe the market is so highly expecting the Federal Reserve uh, and their U-turn to mark the bottom of the market. But if the Federal Reserve gradually U-turns, and the market gradually goes up, a lot of people are going to be sitting on the sidelines waiting for the dust to clear, and there's not actually going to be a big signal of, okay, now it's buy time. We know we know that history told us the best time to buy was when the Fed U-turned, when they set the precedent of bailing out markets in 87. And I'm not talking about a nominal like Fed pivot, like reducing rates or flattening rates, although pivots, the whole like, I've, I've made so many videos on this. If you if you think markets crash after the market pivots, please just type into YouTube, meet Kevin, Fed, pivot, crash. And I pretty much destroy that argument. But what we know, and, and pivot, again, like a slowing down or a slight reducing of rates, that's not a big deal. What a big deal is, is when the Fed breaks something and then the U-turn, kind of like they did in 87. Uh, and they set the precedent for bailing out markets, March of 03. Uh, Feb of 09, December of 18, and March of 20. These were like bat signals to buy. These were the best bat signals that are like, buy, 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 buy. And you would have bought the bottom of the market. Almost perfectly, you would have bought the bottom of the market. But what happens if we don't get the bat signal this time? And this was one of the things I've been thinking of for a while is that those bat signals are so well known. And you have a Fed that rather than breaking something and U-turning, might end up doing something more like this, getting slightly less and less hawkish over time. And there's no giant like bailout V-shaped recovery 
It's instead you get this very, very slow, gradual Nike swoosh. People on the sidelines don't get the signal. They don't get the memo. And so all of a sudden, then they look back, you know, six months later and they're like, what the hell? I missed out, <laughs> you know? And then the Fed's like, yeah, all right, things are good. And they're like, wait, where was the bat signal? It's like, well, we, we didn't break anything. We didn't need a bat signal this time. It's like, well, we didn't break anything. You didn't need a bat signal. Well, damn, I was waiting for my bat signal. Like, well, we didn't break anything. <laughs> you know? so, so that is the risk, in my opinion, to, to, um, to basically calling everything a bear market rally. Again, that is not to say by any means we're for sure at a bottom. Uh, who knows? If we get bad inflation reports, we're screwed. Uh, you know, the recession ends up deeper and darker than expected, or the Fed decides to just continue hiking over 5%, even though the market's not pricing that in, it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem. The market's going to have to price in, uh, you know, a ludicrous Fed, basically. Um, okay, interesting. The Fed rate futures uh, monitor right now is pricing in pretty much a guaranteed 25 basis point hike for the next meeting. That's a shift from yesterday, where there was actually some pricing in of a potential pause. I don't think anybody really expected a pause in this next one. Everybody was mostly looking for that, that 0.25 hike. Uh, and so uh, we'll, we'll see how things uh, end up pricing going forward. But uh, the next 25 basis point hikes certainly being expected. I'll look at the Fed terminal rate monitor. And then we, we have data coming out in just about five minutes here. So let's see what we have here. Fed peak uh, monitor right now is uh, markets are pricing in a peak of 5.07 is what's currently being priced in. Keep in mind that that pricing has basically been stable since about September of last year. Uh, so since September of last year, you have this, the Fed, okay, we're pricing at 5%. And since then, we kind of hit this level and we've just been bobbing up and down at 5%. So the market really actually hasn't suggested that the Fed will, with certainty, uh, end up below 5%, though you are starting to see cuts priced in, which is quite entertaining, uh, by the end of the year. And this is where yesterday we covered this potential for the Federal Reserve uh, to U-turn and to potentially cut rates uh, earlier and what that would look like. That was a Nikki Leaks article that we went through and it was fascinating. So we'll talk more about that soon. But first, we got data coming up here in about three minutes. So we'll uh, listen in and see what we have uh, Gloomberg and CNBC chatting about. And then we'll get that data in uh, three minutes from now. Okay, both of them are on ads, no problem. We'll do a quick check of the markets. Uh, Pre-market, uh, Express Seagate up about 8 to 9%. Tesla up 7.6% after earnings here. Uh, it was a big thesis of mine. Uh, even though I don't play earnings personally, but it was a, a big thesis of mine that this earnings call would would not be the bottom of margins, that you'd probably see that be Q1. That's roughly what we were told as well uh, in the actual earnings call, which reiterates that thesis. But also, uh, I think a lot of folks expected the numbers to just be so much worse. Uh, and now that that catalyst is gone, I think a lot of folks are, are, are somewhat trying to move in or move back or reposition back in. Uh, to Tesla. So I don't know if this is just retail buying in the pre-market. It probably is. Uh, generally, institutions buy when the market opens. So we'll see if institutions are going to take this as an opportunity to sell the rip. Uh, so we might see some red candles right out of the gate at the, at the open. Or is this a moment where they say, damn, the fundamentals actually are pretty good. Uh, you know, even, even if we only get to 1.8 million vehicles this year, that's also still pretty good, 38% growth. 
if we get to the two mil, great, that's 50% growth. Let's maybe allocate a little bit. Who knows? I think we'll see that institutional allocation or selling a little bit better uh, once the market opens. Waiting for that economic data to come out now should be pretty exciting. Again, we are waiting for a whole host of economic data, including the annualized GDP numbers. We're expecting 2.6 uh, for Q4. Anything lower is, is, is really potentially going to indicate uh, fears that the recession will be uh, deeper in an environment where the Federal Reserve is more aggressive. Wholesale inventories, retail inventories, jobless claims, continuing claims, new home sales. I mean, all, well, actually, new home sales don't come out until 7 a.m., but this 5.30 data comes out in about 60 seconds. We'll have that ready. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, you got to be careful playing volatility on, uh, on, on stocks as well, because, for example, Tesla had implied volatility, or uh, Tesla implied a movement of 10%. But until the earnings call, the stock didn't actually move at all, which means anybody who bought options before, like as, as puts or calls or straddles, could have potentially lost just because of a volatility crush. Uh, however, uh, we did end up getting that earnings call pushing, uh, pushing, you know, Tesla stock movement up in that 7% direction. So it is interesting how sometimes you can get a volatility crush and, and no potential uh, actual activity. All right, here we go. All right, GDP numbers annualized quarter over quarter for the fourth quarter are... Okay, waiting for them, we're waiting for them, come on. Wholesale inventories month over month coming up 0.1% instead of the 0.5 expected. Waiting for the GDP number, retail inventories up 0.5. GDP comes in 2.9, better than expected. 2.9 is the GDP annualized quarter over quarter number for the fourth quarter. Advanced goods trade balance, negative 90.3 bill versus the 88 expected. That's for, for the balance of trade. Wholesale inventories, again, a miss on wholesale inventories. Actually not rising as much as expected, only rising 0.1% versus the 0.5% expected. And a revision down uh, on the previous wholesale inventories balance from 1% to 0.9%. Retail inventories uh, up 0.5% versus the 0.2% expected. Personal consumption coming in at only 2.1% versus the 2.9% expected. So individual consumption missing. Uh, we've got uh, core PCE, Q over Q, 3.9%. Continuing claims coming in hot uh, at uh, 1675 versus the expectation of 1658. And an upward revision of the prior data, so more people filing for unemployment claims over the continuing basis. However, less this week. We were expecting, again, 205,000 claims. We got 186,000. Capital good orders, negative uh, 0.2%. Uh, Non-defense, excluding air, we've got cap good orders at negative 0.4% versus the 0.4% expected. Durable good orders, 5.6% versus the 2.5% expected for December. So, uh, okay, these numbers actually not like super dark recessionary. Uh, it, let's see how the stock market is, is trying to react to some of this. Getting a little bit of a red candlestick on on, on the NASDAQ, but but barely. I mean, you're, you're moving from 
uh, 1% up to 80 basis point up, uh, 80 basis points up, and, and you're slightly turning green here now. You've got Tesla up now eight and a quarter percent, actually popping off on this sort of number here. I think the idea here is the market, the market wants inflation to plummet, but we don't want to see a really recessionary environment. Uh, even though we probably are in a recessionary, certainly recessionary-ish environment. Uh, it's interesting that GDP is so well positive, 2.9%. Now, keep in mind, the way they annualize that means GDP was actually 0.725 for uh, the fourth quarter, and then they just multiply that by four. You don't use exponents here. You're basically just saying if we're traveling at the speed of 0.725, how much is GDP growing over the year? Well, it would be about 2.9%. Again, coming in hotter than expected, uh, and uh, this this uh, really interesting divergence here, where retail uh, and and personal consumption misses. So individuals are spending less money, but yet GDP actually coming in stronger, which is fascinating because it makes you wonder: Is it possible that less individualistic spending, given that the consumer is seventy percent of the economy, could help continue to drive inflation down? Uh, while GDP actually stays positive. That actually is a very Goldilocks result. Uh, now, NASDAQ uh, up about 0.6%, so slightly shaving off about, uh, uh, you know, four-tenths of a percent there on these results. I'm personally not exactly sure why they would be uh, you know, sort of negative about this. To me, this seems a little Goldilocks-esque. But let's go ahead and take a look at uh, what markets are thinking uh, about from the perspective of Wall Street. So we have here the Bloomberg dollar index rose to a session high after the fourth quarter GDP came in better than expected at 2.9 versus 2.6. Jobless claims coming in below their estimates. Again, a little bit hot there, right? And maybe uh, uh, markets are suggesting, well, if jobless claims are continuing, uh, continuing to come in hot, in other words, fewer jobless claims than we expect, then maybe the Fed is going to have to hawk for longer. And I think that's the longer the Fed hawks, the more the dollar goes up. I actually moved from my dollar short position to more of a uh, long growth and technology position. The reason I did that was I thought we kind of, I, I thought I kind of started maxing out my dollar short position and I wanted to catch more of potentially the bottom in growth and tech. Uh, and so I'm glad I, I made that positioning move at this point. But yeah, the 10 year treasury yield moving up to about uh, just now over about three and a half percent. So yields moving positive on this. Oil moving positive, about 1.5% on this information here. Yields on Euro dollar futures, slightly higher as well. Stronger economy, pushing yields up as potentially central banks might be forced to stay with those 25 BP hikes for longer. We have, uh, this is insight here now from Wall Street. I want to get a little bit more Wall Street insight. Trade was a significant contributor to GDP at 0.56 percentage points of the overall 2.9% uh, expansion in GDP. Government spending accounted for 0.64 percentage points. So basically consumption, trade, and government are all kicking in. Consumer spending, uh, within consumer spending, uh-oh, it was services that once again propelled growth with positive purchases. Services spending made up 1.16% of the overall 2.9% annualized quarter growth. This is the other red flag that you have this potential that services inflation is going to remain higher for longer, forcing the Federal Reserve to hawk 
more and for longer. Uh, we have, uh, if I look at the breakdown uh, of this release, it looks like the only negative sector was residential investment. Red flag for your solar companies, for Enphase, Generac, Solar Edge. Uh, however, the other positive sectors here, big positive from uh, personal consumption expenditures on services, minor positive on goods, change in private inventories, minor positive, government spending was a positive, uh, net exports was a positive. Recession fears are everywhere. Uh, however, GDP, positive. Uh, a lot of... Lot of uh, you know, it's going to be the biggest irony ever if we end up getting no recession, like no official recession. The one last year ends up getting revised away, and then we don't get a recession this year. And uh, and, and uh, we don't ever end up getting a recession in this cycle. And then everybody, all of the economists are just going to take the big L on, oh, the most predicted recession ever. And it just doesn't happen. Consumption coming in a bit weaker than expected, again, with that 2.1% growth. But again, still, those services representing about that 1.2% gain of that GDP move. So uh, again, these are there are definitely some things in here that might make the Fed's antenna move up a little bit, right? Uh, more pressure in services, okay. But still, it's lower than expected overall. Uh, it's not a recessionary read. It actually builds the case for a soft landing. And in my opinion, it, it like this is expected. Of course, services are still the hot sector. Uh, the question is, are those services going to wear down? Uh, I think as the markets are are, are uh, realizing that, you know what, maybe maybe uh, this is actually more good news than it is bad news. Yes, we know continuing claims uh, or jobless claims didn't come in as high as expected, but whatever. Maybe we don't have to crush the jobs market to prevent a recession uh, and to get inflation out. Uh, the stock market actually seems to be now trying to react slightly more positively. The NASDAQ actually seems to be trying to run right now. Now it's up uh, over 1.1%. Now, you know, the minute-by-minute the -minute fluctuations are quite ridiculous in the stock market. But uh, I think what you have here is more good than bad. I think you have a reiteration that, yes, there are still some stresses, that we're not losing as many jobs as maybe the Fed might hope, and there are still some services pressures. But look, let's be clear here. If inflation plummets... The Fed does not have to worry about services spending, and the Fed does not have to worry about killing jobs. If inflation goes away, they actually have to go back to their other mandate, which is maximum employment, which means the Fed does not actually have to destroy this economy uh, and does not actually have to force joblessness. Uh, and I think that's where we can get to not only looking at the numbers, but looking at the Canadian uh, report, uh, the Canadian Monetary Policy Report. Now, you might think I'm crazy to say we should look at the Canadian Monetary Policy Report, but you know what's fascinating? They give us insights about the United States. <laughs> they talk more about the United States than they talk about Canada. A few things that I want to point out in the Monetary Policy Report from Canada that came out uh, just recently here was that they actually don't force themselves into the 2% target like the Fed does Although the Fed does have flexible average inflation targeting, which I expect they'll be talking about a lot soon when they're ready to U-turn, they will use that to maintain their credibility. But look at this. Very similar to the idea of being flexible, the Canadian Central Bank in their monetary policy report talks about inflection, inflation targeting approach, which is flexible. Oh boy, does that not sound familiar to fate. 
flexible average inflation targeting, which is a policy our Federal Reserve has. But then take a look at this. Uh, high inflation. Inflation is high and declining. Inflation in services prices has remained strong and broad-based. It will take some time for high interest rates to bring this down. I actually think this is fantastic news right here. Think about it. You have the Central Bank of Canada telling you, hey guys, look, we, we know services inflation is hot, but we also realize the lags for services inflation are even longer than the lags for goods inflation. If our Fed thinks the same thing, that's good because it potentially reiterates the the uh, the, the uh, it reiterates the the goal of rise. Jeez, oh, I can't get my words out now. It reiterates the goal of raising rates to a certain point, pausing and holding them there for longer. And this is uh, this is probably something that the Federal Reserve is considering as well, especially especially as we see inflation in shelter costs. Uh, potentially easing uh, substantially, and the rest of the services sector slowing down over time. Now, uh, what do we have here? Global supply bottlenecks are resolving. Massive reduction in global supply bottlenecks. Transportation costs plummeting. I mean, you don't even have to be an expert to analyze this chart to just see it's basically straight down on these charts as provided by the Canadian Central Bank. Continued monetary policy tightening, head, headline inflation is edging down from its peak, but the risk of over-tightening is actually decreasing. And when they look at the United States, which this is where they talk more about the United States than they talk about Canada, I find this interesting. The bank projects U.S. activity to remain relatively flat through 2023. Recent strength in consumption spending is anticipated to slow. And that's exactly what just happened in the GDP report. We saw that consumption came in a lot weaker than expected. The boost to growth coming from high demand and in-person services, exactly where we saw the boost in the GDP report this morning, and a catch-up in motor vehicle sales should diminish over time. Look at this. The Central Bank of Canada is basically sending a big signal to the Fed saying, look, yeah, you've got some services inflation, but we think that's going to go away. We, we are going to see a little bit more of a pickup in that, and then we're going to peak out, and it'll go away. And it's going to take longer for those interest rates to actually push that down, but when it does, it'll go down. Uh, and, and eventually, we'll see a rebound in residential investments. But right now, we're expected to see declines in residential investments. Goodness gracious, it's almost as if the Central Bank of Canada saw our numbers this morning before we saw our numbers. Uh, this report was actually incredible. You know, they talk about the property sector expected to continue to slow in China and that the property market outlook for China remains highly uncertain. They talk a lot about lower energy prices and they talk about spreads uh, between uh, Russia and, uh, and, and Canadian and United States oil prices. However, the trend being very clear for oil prices, down. The trend for gas prices being very clear, down. Uh, especially with the warmer winter that we've seen. Base metal prices rising after China announces its property sector support, but overall expecting to see commodity prices remain stable in 2023. And yes, for the Canadian economy, growth is projected to slow at the end of 2022 and maybe stall through the middle of 2023, but as, as tightening really starts biting. But really, uh, uh, you know, a, a return to growth coming thereafter with, again, the biggest risk 
being inflation for services excluding infl uh, a shelter, sort of your super core, to potentially be the most persistent. But eventually, as higher interest rates bite, we expect to see that come down. And look at this. Even Canada saying large price increases are now a little less widespread for wages. Uh, this is, uh, I believe this is for, uh, no, this is, uh, no, actually, no, no, no. CPA, nope, this is uh, this is just regular inflation, seeing that inflation come down for price increases. Okay, good. So fascinating report, honestly, from the Bank of Canada. And in my opinion, this Bank of Canada report actually really works with what we're seeing uh, from the GDP numbers that came out this morning. But there, there's even more data uh, on this. And I think it's very fascinating because you have to think about inflation, right? You have to think that inflation cooled in December to its slowest pace in over a year. You have a 5% uh, annual PC, PCE expected, uh, but it actually can and core expected to come in at 4.4%. These expected on the PCE numbers are expected to be some of the lowest advances since late 2021. This is great. And remember the personal consumption expenditures numbers come out on the morning of the 27th which is just three days before the expiration of that coupon code, the final coupon code we're doing, the best price you're going to get guaranteed at bare minimum for the next three months, potentially forever on any of the programs I'm building your wealth, or even shadowing me. Uh, now, what's fascinating about the shadowing is we, it, we that has been so popular, we might have to turn off people's ability to book the shadowing soon because uh, my plane is undergoing an upgrade for about another week, but that is really started to, to fill up how many slots we have available. Uh, so we are adding days where we're going to be flying, uh, where you can shadow me. We're going to be doing weekend days. We're going to probably be adding Mondays and Tuesdays. Uh, so that way we can fulfill the demand. Uh, but we, we might be getting to the point where we have to uh, stop taking signups for that. So uh, if that is interesting to you, check that out down below if you want to bundle up with some coupons uh, for some of the other programs you've already bought or your course member already and you're looking for a bundle price or you want to bundle out of the gate a course and maybe shadowing, email us at kevin at meetkevin.com. Fed's PCE estimate, again, expected to come in uh, uh, low tomorrow. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, expecting to bring in those month over month numbers for PCE deflator tomorrow at 0% versus 0.1 uh, prior. We'll see if we get a miss there. We did talk a little bit about wages going up for Walmart, but we also dismantled that argument that Walmart's wage prices are uh, and, and the wage increases at Walmart will really create any kind of inflationary spiral, mostly because when we look at the Walmart balance sheet, we see a company that's actually losing money and that's cash flow negative, uh, not only due to settlements, but, but high expenses and high costs. And even though they've been a staples darling, we think we could actually see a valuation compression come to Walmart, especially as these higher wages end up hitting their bottom line even more. We don't really see this as inflationary. We actually see this as more of catch up for Walmart. Talked about that heavily in yesterday's report. Uh, as well as the fact that you're seeing autos, which is a huge sector of inflation, uh, representing somewhere around 5.5% uh, just in, in used cars and new cars, but then you also have uh, transportation, a huge piece of CPI. And we are seeing massive uh, catch-ups in, in inventory, uh, elevated inventory to sales ratios, uh, GM having the worst ratio, two times the inventory to sales. We're seeing average sticker prices finally under, uh, or average sales finally under sticker prices. This is this is remarkable. Okay, I want you to think about this for a moment. When you go to a car lot, do you expect to pay sticker? 
Well, hopefully your answer was no, but that has not been true over the past couple years. You've actually been paying over MSRP. You've been paying over sticker for the past two years. Well, now folks in December, you are finally paying an average of $93 less than the sticker price. Think about that. $93 less than sticker is finally what you are paying for autos. I think that's kind of remarkable. The, uh, uh, the fact that we are starting to see some of that sort of uh, deflationary competitiveness uh, in autos pricing. Uh, and I think that it will continue. Uh, average prices paid right now are sitting at uh, 48517 This is the uh, first time we have seen a negative sticker price paid since September of 2021. GM and Stellantis expected to be the companies are really losing most pricing power and margin power due to high inventories uh, relative to companies like potentially Tesla where most of their inventories uh, stay relatively depleted compared to their production. I do also want to take a moment just to ask, your, to ask you, do legacy autos have network effects like Tesla? Do, do people who have a pickup truck from Ford encourage other people to buy a Ford pickup truck? Or do people potentially just buy any pickup truck that they want? Whereas people who have a Tesla, do those network effects encourage other, people's, other people to buy Teslas? or to encourage other people to buy EVs. I would argue that Teslas have a network effect of encouraging people to buy Teslas, mostly because of the auto, uh, the, the autopilot and self-driving. Speaking, of course, of uh, autos, uh, if you search on YouTube, meet Kevin Rivian Lucid Tesla, you see a comparison that I made uh, analyzing the uh, income and expenses for Rivian compared to Tesla, compared to Lucid. And Bloomberg has now officially indicated that Rivian's uh, uh, um, default risk is now at 16% or 32% higher than all peers over five years. That Rivian has potentially one of the highest auto manufacturer default risks relative to certainly a company like uh, <clears throat> Carvana, which we actually do expect them to potentially go bankrupt here. But it's no surprise that when you look at the Rivian financials, they're absolutely terrible absolutely terrible. And, and I hate to say it, okay? Uh, because, you know, I, I want to see other EVs succeed. Uh, but uh, look, you just don't have to look too heavily at the Rivian financials to see that in their last financial report, they are taking in revenues of $536 million. They're spending in cost of goods sold alone about three times that. That's insane. They have to spend in cost of goods sold $2.71 just to make a buck. That's terrible. It's the opposite of how it should be. Uh, and uh, we really think that, according to Bloomberg, Rivian needs about $16 billion of money just to survive uh, in, in new capital. Uh, this is something that I've been analyzing for, for months now, that uh, their cash flows are so heavily negative that they're going to have to raise money. The wild thing about Rivian, though, is it has a $16 billion market cap. And somehow they're supposed to raise $15 billion on a $16 billion market cap? Yeah, right. Glad I made my money shorting Rivian when I did. Anyway, 
Uh, you do still have those some, and, and this goes back to sort of the, the uh, inflationary concerns and GDP concerns. You know, it's it's not all just good news. There are some mixed sets of news. You have uh, McDonald's, for example, raising prices in an attempt to compensate for margin pressures. Restaurants are getting reamed. Robin Hood loses money hand over fist. Cheesecake Factory is losing money now. McDonald's is positive because of their franchise model, but their franchisee uh, their, or, or the people doing the franchises are getting screwed. I guess those would be the franchisees and McDonald's the franchisor. But anyway, uh, price hikes of about 10% coming in Q3. Operating income still not really improving. They are lowering their SG&A costs, but labor costs are so high, their margins are getting squeezed. Margins fell from... Uh, 2021, nine months ending Q3 of 46% down to 39%. Uh, and, and their net income fell about 10%. Uh, yet McDonald's is a stock that's barely moved down over the past year. I think they're down like 1% or maybe they're even positive now over the past year. And it's insane uh, because they're still expecting commodities and labor inflation of 12, uh, t uh, 12 to 14% for labor and, and uh, or I'm sorry, 12 to 14% for commodities and 10% for labor. It's insane. Uh, so you are still seeing inflation in, uh, in those services, lower income sectors. Keep in mind the average hourly earnings of an individual in America are somewhere over $30. But if you're working at you know, Chipotle or McDonald's or Walmart, it's closer to $17. Uh, Chipotle seeing price hikes of, of around 12.5%. Uh, and uh, uh, their net income actually improved, though. Their net income was somewhere around 9.4% in 21, relative to 10.5% in 2022. And uh, Starbucks seeing some uh, a net income compression, mostly due to China and China's exposure. They've been building new Chinese Starbucks like crazy. I actually think that could be a positive for Starbucks. And you could potentially see a boom in Starbucks. So if you wanted some Chinese exposure, Starbucks could actually potentially be an interesting play. Uh, so when you put all of this together, look, yes. The Bank of Canada is probably right. We're probably expecting to see uh, deflation uh, in, in, in goods and disinflation coming to services as higher rates hit. We still have some news that's coming in hot. We're not seeing as much uh, in terms of unemployment claims, claims as we would expect. Still seeing food uh, inflation. And yes, while commodities are coming down, they're still taking a bite out of uh, certainly some of the food sector. So you got some pain. But uh, boy, you know, Personally, uh, I am of the belief that uh, we, we it would not be surprising to see a Fed that ends up uh, slowly capitulating, very slowly capitulating, no sudden, oh crap, we broke something, black swan, and markets could just slowly recover. Uh, now, in terms of real estate, real estate might stay a little sticky uh, and painful for a little bit longer especially as those 10 years stick around 3.5%. I really think for real estate to more meaningfully recover, we've got to see that 10-year probably under 2.75. 2.5 will be actually relatively starting to get bullish again for real estate. But at 3.5%, uh, yeah, we have a slight little bit of euphoria in that, oh, rates came down a little bit, but not exciting enough to really uh, push the real estate market to, uh, uh, to price increases, at least just not yet. So some thoughts there. Remember, 30% off coupon code ticker or uh, use coupon code JET to check out on those programs building on building your wealth. Biggest coupon code ever uh, uh, or, or best price you can get here ever. Uh, guaranteed. 
expiring within the next uh, four days. So excited to see you as part of those. Remember, after we do the morning pre-market opening streams uh, and, uh, uh, you know, co consolidation of all this crazy information that I put together uh, with my team uh, throughout uh, uh, throughout the day and in the early morning hours, uh, it's it's tiring. Uh, your your uh, support, even just being here watching, is is uh, I'm, I'm super grateful for it. Do remember, after this, I go into the course member live stream, and uh, you could watch the replays of those or watch them live with me. But uh, remember, you can also now this particular episode. In fact, you might already be listening there. You can get on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and uh, Spotify. Usually within about 30 minutes of uh, of the opening bell. So my goal is to get that up by about 7 a.m. in the morning. You'll have this podcastable. So if you want to take it on the go uh, on your work, you can do that. You can also interact uh, by posting your commentary and thoughts by going to metkevin.com slash chat and providing articles or things for me to react to. You go to metkevin.com slash chat. Uh, and then there's a section for the Meet Kevin report that you could provide uh, some insights or information and things you'd like me to take a look at, uh, which is uh, quite exciting. So uh, consider that. Okay, so uh, let's see here. Then we get, uh, da, 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 da. let's take a listen to Jimbo, see what he's got. See you in a little bit, my friend. All right. Morning, buddy. Chuck. It's morning. His name is Chuck. Charles Scarborough. Well, Recapping uh, this hour's economic data. Fourth quarter GDP coming in uh, at 2.9%, slightly better than expectations. Joining us now is Marianne Bartles, Chief Investment Strategist at Sanctuary Wealth. Are you surprised that the Dow is managing to trade higher on what looked like a pretty hot number? It should in, in, in a normal world, but the one we're used to is as good as bad. You know, I think the market is really struggling in what direction it wants to go to, whether or not yeah. it wants to break to the upside or break to the downside. But I think that all the data today will suggest that the Fed is going to continue to tighten and they're going to continue to tighten maybe at a slower pace. But things are, you know, some areas are hot and some areas are not hot. But the big message that we wanted to say in our year ahead in 2023 is that the bull is already running. There's a pocket of our market that is on a tear and it's in the value space. It's in energy, it's industrials, it's materials. Are you serious? That was the, that was the 2022 play. I mean, it's, there are pockets, but the overall uh, averages have done well since the beginning of the year. And All right, these folks are boring. Let's answer a little bit of Q and A. All right, actually, you know what? Let's pull up the sticks while I answer a little bit of Q and A. Uh... Let's see what we got on the sticks. Sticks, baby. All right. Uh, Tesla's up 9%. My God. Uh, you've got, let's see here. Dutch Bros, 1.19%. Home Depot, 1% to the downside over here. Embraer is sitting at about 13 bucks. Uh, that's actually pretty good. Dang, 13 bucks already. Uh, what, what, I bought this pretty more heavily uh, in November. Uh, what was it like in November 30? Yeah, I bought this around 10 bucks. Wow, look at that. 13 bucks. Yeah, Embraer, they, they got some, some pretty large PP. Uh, really excited about Embraer's PP. Pricing power. Pricing power, pricing power, pricing power. It's where it's at. Um, 
How star okay, here, Redfin's actually rebounding about 4% after an 8.5% drop yesterday. Matterport up 4.3%. Not optimistic about the Matterport earnings. I am not optimistic about those earnings. Let me see when those are. Uh, Matterport. But I haven't been since their last earnings report for them. So, and they report. I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> uh, anyway, report Q4. Mm. Feb 15. Feb 15 or 14? That's ah, one of those. Okay, so it's it's a little bit while, uh, a little bit of time to go before we get the Matterport numbers. But um, yeah, the fact that Rivian's up four percent is stupid. They're gonna like if you're holding Rivian right now. Don't complain when they dilute the crap out of you even more. Although, again, remember, rising tide lifts all ships, so you can still see some moves up. But Rivian's probably moving in sympathy to Tesla, which that's just got to be the stupidest thing ever. Um, Trade Desk. Trade Desk was up 2% yesterday, up 2.6 today. Lemonade sitting at 15 bucks. Peloton sitting at 11 bucks. Etsy, 138. Etsy's actually been doing pretty decently. Pretty dang decently. All right, let's do a little Q&A here. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, it, it, look, the Tesla tequila was if it hit 6.9% yesterday, man. I have it right here, but I'm going to make myself sick if I drink Tesla tequila at 6 a.m. <laughs> look, I, I'm, I'm all for it's 5 o'clock somewhere, okay? Yesterday... After, okay, this was awesome, okay? Like, this was so cool. Yesterday, after the Tesla earnings call, and after I posted my Tesla video, we had a pizza party with the gang starting at like 4.30, uh, and uh, a and, uh, pizza and beer party. Uh, so we took off work a little early, uh, although what's early when you start work at 3.30? Oh, well, I do. Everybody else starts at 8. Um the uh, so, so we took off a bit early, but what we did is we got a giant spa. We got like a seven, no, it's it's like an 11 person spa. And so we got this giant spa that we went into for the first time, had a pizza and beer party in it. But what's crazy is right next to the spa outside, I put two giant TVs. And on those TVs, I have Bloomberg uh, showing us the Asia market open, like Hong Kong open. And then on the left side, I have the Reuters terminal giving me minute-by-minute minute news. So it's like we're sitting there and we feel like we're working with pizza and beer in this, like, 11-person spa. It's pretty awesome. Just have to say, oh, yeah, and, and, because there's the, the worst part about getting out of a spa is obviously how cold it is when you get out of the spa and it's, like, 60, 55 degrees, whatever, and, and then you're, like, freezing trying to dry yourself off. So we put a giant heater uh, right there next to the spa when you get out. So it's nice and warm and toasty for you where your towels are. Yeah, real, real first world, okay? <laughs> but I like to say, work hard, play hard. But I'm not going to drink Tesla tequila at 6 a.m. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, um, okay, some more Q&A. Uh, Dirk, thanks for being a YouTube channel member here. Good morning, folks. Is House Hack going to buy commercial real estate like office spaces? Uh, potentially in, in five years, but, but not in the near term. 
What if housing doesn't drop as expected? Uh, well, so house hacks business model does not rely on, on housing having to be cheaper. That's just convenient. That's just opportunistic. Uh, house hacks business model is all about how much can we expand buying wedge deals? Uh, buying those uh, and, and then, and then uh, you know, what can we do to cash out the wedge uh, and, and maximize the flywheel of milking wedge deals without flipping them uh, and incurring substantially high costs, right? That's the house hack business model. The uh, non-accredited round is expected uh, probably April, so TBD on that. Uh, let's see here. Mm -hmm. Car guys will always try to defend their own car. Uh, Bank of Canada, 1% hike when you guys did a 0.5. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, the percentage of rate, I, uh, rate hike, I, I don't know so much uh, how much uh, relatively it matters. It's, it's interesting. It might be interesting to line those up. Uh, I, I more was looking at sort of the context of, of why they're acting. Uh, and I think that provides us some interesting insights into, uh, uh, you know, even what's going on over here. Even even how they're phrasing flexible average inflation targeting, right? Yeah, I think that's quite interesting. So, all right, what else do we have here? Kevin, I kind of knew to stocks, but you briefly explain why you can't buy certain ETFs on apps like Robinhood. Uh, my understanding is you can. So I, I don't know why why you might not be able to, but but my understanding is uh, uh, people have not been having issues buying ETFs on Robinhood. Uh, but you could always you know sign up for Weeble. I'm pretty sure the link is still active. Metkevin.com/weeble. Yeah, I, I don't know what. Let's let's see what they're doing right now in terms. Of, I don't know. I haven't done I haven't done any kind of like pitch or anything in a very long time. Uh, let's see here. Metkevin.com/weeble. Uh, let's see what we have. Ah, actually, that doesn't even work right now. Metkevin.com slash free? Ah, metkevin.com slash free. Okay, yeah, look at that. So if you go to metkevin.com slash free, join Weeble today and get up to 12 free fractional shares. I know you can buy it there. Uh, and look at that. You get up to $3,000 of free money. Each stock is valued between $3 and $3,000. Wait, so that means you're getting at least $36. Oh, that's cool. I've gotten a free Apple stock from Weeble before. That was pretty cool. But anyway, Weeble's the chart that I have up over here. This is You just go to metkevin.com slash free and you get this. But anyway, uh, I know that Weeble lets you buy uh, ETFs because I personally hold uh, said ETFs on, on Weeble. So uh, this, is, this is what I've been using. But anyway, wow, Tesla's almost up 10%. It's crazy. Let's see what Jimbo's got to say about that. Twitter yeah, debt, yeah, which he did push back on. But are we done thinking about additional stock sales of Tesla to pay for you know, whatever they do owe at Twitter? Yeah, and I think that that was instrumental in bringing the stock down. Uh, because every day you had someone, you had supply, and this stock was very supply constrained. I now feel that it actually has a P.E. It's not a bad stock. It's not a bad stock to own. I mean, this is a guy who has got the the moment of, of the economy is you want to cut price in order to get buyers. He's cutting price. It sells at 32 times earnings. I mean, it is relatively cheap versus tech. We'll have tech companies on. They'll be 40 times earnings. They don't have anywhere near the growth that he has. Right. And and, and oncoming competition, oncoming charging networks, um, 
oncoming marketing, right? The power of marketing, which is something Tesla doesn't do. Well, that is the principal worry, is, is that if you have to start marketing, which Tesla is not going to do, uh, what will that do? Let's, will, will, are they trying to commoditize their own? I mean, when you look at Henry Ford and the Model T, he wanted to dominate, and then he became a commodity. And you don't have as much price leverage when you have a commodity. But I do think that if you're, at, you're Mary Barr, if you're Jim Farley, I think you're saying, darn it, darn it, I, you know, wow. We I, thought we had him on the ropes for yeah, a bit. we thought we had him on the ropes. That's a good way to Look, listen, Tesla's will become a commodity. I promise you that. I promise you, Tesla vehicles will become a commodity. That means basically everybody's got one. Uh, okay, I shouldn't promise that because I can't guarantee it. Uh, and I forgot because now I'm a financial advisor, I can't make statements like that. So let me let me dial that back a little bit. I cannot promise and I cannot guarantee you, but I think there is a substantially high likelihood that Tesla's become a commodity. The difference is you get FSD, baby. And now all of a sudden, Nobody gives a crap about what the margin is on the cars. Give the cars away for goodness sakes. We'll sell them for free, like at, at break even, right? They can sell the cars for break even and just print money on FSD. That's what people are missing, right? Uh, and, and this is what like I've been shaking for, for, for a long time. There's a reason, uh, uh, you know, I, I have the largest allocation to Tesla. Uh, you know, in, in my personal portfolio and, and in other places that I can't mention. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, the, the, the pricing power of, of that full self-driving is remarkable. And I will say, uh, and I, I'm, I don't like to be hypey about it, but I don't drive anymore. Uh, you know, like when I'm in the car, I don't drive anymore. It does it all. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, it, it completely drives uh, start to finish. It's, it's quite, quite ridiculous. Uh, the, the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, try, maybe Steve, somebody else can give you the, the alternative website link. So anyway, let's keep going back to Jimbo here. It's industrial, and I don't think people get that. Speaking of industrial uh, information, new data today uh, showed a slight slowdown in economic growth. Initial read of uh, Q4 GDP 2.9, uh, deceleration from 3.2, but that is above consensus, and that slowdown occurring in the wake of higher rates. Claims, we're still shaking our head, Jim, at 186,000. Not to, and, and durables, by the way, the best print since uh, 2020. No, I mean, it's just not working yet. I mean, you can see why they do these quarter points, because... These are numbers that are pretty much red hot. I, I saw them and I said, oh, 50's back on the table. Because it's just not possible to have these numbers and expect, other than an enterprise software, that you're going to see uh, layoffs. I mean, look, Dow laid off people, a couple thousand, but they're really Europe. I mean, Europe is in recession. Uh, China coming back in construction. But you know, it's weird he's saying that Europe's in recession. <clears throat> You know, France and Germany just came out and said, we are not in recession. Keine Krise. We are doing good. Everything is great. Things are so great. We will send Panzer to Ukraine. Okay, oh, I'm allowed to do that because I'm, well, I was born in Germany. <laughs> and I also hold German citizenship. Uh, I'm a dual citizen. 
But what we should talk about is the fear that is being placed over the idea of sending Ukraine tanks and what the implications of this are. Some folks are making the argument that the United States sending Abrams tanks, 32 of them, uh, and Germany authorizing other countries like Poland to send tanks and potentially F-16s from the Netherlands to Ukraine, there are two arguments happening. Argument number one, Ukraine is losing so badly that they need a bailout and Europe is worried about their own safety. Argument number two, which is the argument that I personally believe uh, it has a higher likelihood of being correct, but it could be wrong. Argument number two is that Ukraine is doing so well in fighting against Russia and the Russian military is becoming so disorganized and fractured that these tanks will provide a mop-up force for Ukraine. Now, Russia does have a lot of anti-tank weapons, so they will have to utilize these weapons very carefully. However, the concern is either direction, whether Ukraine is losing or winning, the concern is that providing these sorts of weapons like F-16 fighter jets, which are Gen 4 fighter jets, they're nowhere near as awesome as the new fighter jets that are Gen 5s, even Gen 6s soon, uh, that we have in America, uh, but they're still pretty badass. Uh, these, uh, these, these, uh, uh, there, there's an argument that essentially uh, Russia will start World War III with nuclear weapons because they'll get backed into a corner. But I think that concern originally held tanks away. And a World War III scenario was exactly why Germany and the United States have actually not been authorizing battle tanks. The fact that now, rather than just authorizing armored personnel carriers, they are authorizing tanks, battle tanks, uh, is, is actually, in my opinion, a sign that they are less worried about World War III. Of course, some argue that, no, BlackRock just wants to be able to rebuild Ukraine and make money there so that, that the United States government has to be part of the rebuilding process. Uh, and therefore, they have to make sure Ukraine maintains a ter its territory. And then, you know, we get into sort of tinfoil hat of, uh, well, the whole military industrial con uh, complex is making a whole lot of money off this, which is true. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, their lobbyists are basically forcing the U.S. and European governments to uh, support the sending of more weapons so they can make more weapons. The Leopard 2 battle tank, for example, is uh, a little bit, uh, requires a little bit shorter training than the uh, Abrams. It's about three to six weeks of training per crew to operate a Leopard battle tank. Crew's about four people. 120 millimeter cannon, full digital fire control system, no manual, it's all digital. It's got two other guns, a 7.62 machine guns, actually both of them. Uh, it's got a driver's hatch uh, and uh, uh, just to the left of the uh, the cannon basically holds 4,750 rounds, unspecified thickness to uh, protect it against uh, IEDs and explosives. It is a diesel-powered battle tank that first went into service in 1979. Here's a picture of your Leopard 2 Panzer from the Germans. The Germans will send you Panzer tanks. Uh, that's redundant. Uh, but anyway, that's your leopard. Then you have the A-1-2 Abrams battle tank on screen now. That, that, that was my attempt at like uh, 
Who's seen those little robotic wars uh, on TV where they fight the little robots and the ones with the plexiglass and the big wheels always flip around? I don't know. Anyway. And the big metal ones with hammers always seem to do well until they get flipped around. Anyway. The Abrams battle tank has a 120mm cannon as well. Also digital fire control. Also four-person crew. But it takes longer to train with. Now, what's remarkable about these is they're substantially stronger than just armored personnel carriers, right? I mean, these are capable of taking down other enemy tanks. This thing's got three additional uh, uh, cannons on it, well, well uh, turrets on it. 12.7mm uh, heavy machine gun, 900 rounds. Two 7.62 machine guns, 10,400 rounds. Also unspecified thickness. This one's actually powered by jet fuel, which is really just a refined diesel. Uh, this is very different from your more armored personnel carriers, which generally come with uh, turrets and uh, are great for reconnaissance or uh, urban combat, but, but less great for uh, anti-tank or anti-armor uh, fighting. Uh, and, and so uh, at the same time as uh, you have uh, this going on, you have uh, Turkey uh, essentially indefinitely trying to block Sweden and Finland from jo joining NATO. A lot of folks are calling this essentially political theater for the upcoming elections, very close elections. You've got, uh, uh, you know, this hope of trying to rally nationalistic and religious groups. Turkey is a member of uh, NATO. Uh, they, they, they're trying to be a member of the EU, but they're not. Uh, they, they are demanding, uh, they're making certain demands, like the extradition of, uh, of certain um, Turkish journalists. Uh, Swedish courts have blocked that extradition. Uh, polled by the Swedes, most don't want, uh, most Swedes don't want uh, well, it says 8 out of 10 Swedes uh, don't want uh, Sweden to compromise with Turkey. Turkey's now actually even going as far as threatening a war with Greece, suggesting that Turkish troops could descend on Greece suddenly one night, threatening Athens with ballistic missiles. This is kind of like a China-Taiwan saber-rattling. The countries are obviously quite close together if you look at the map. Here's one on screen now. Uh, you've got Greece... Uh, essentially wrapping around like a crescent moon uh, around Turkey here. Uh, Turkey obviously holding the very important uh, Istanbul Strait. Uh, old school Constantinople connecting both the European continent and Asian continent as uh, where both of them meet. But uh, yeah, you've got, uh, you know, the Greece uh, or the prime minister of Greece saying, look, we're not going to go to war with Turkey. This is all just saber rattling and nonsense. And this will end up getting resolved just like the conflicts we've seen with Italy and Egypt. Uh, that a lot of this is just nonsense right now. But uh, you do have a lot of geopolitical uh, posturing, should I say, going on right now. Uh, and a lot of fears that these battle tanks and potentially fighter jets uh, are going to aggravate uh, war in Ukraine and potentially induce some kind of uh, World War III scenario where Turkey attacks Greece, China attacks Taiwan, Russia uses nukes, and everything goes to hell. I really don't think that is likely. And personally, I believe that a lot of it is, is fear-mongering, uh, but it does make for, uh, you know, uh, news that needs to be covered. Uh, it is something that should be paid attention to so we can watch for potential inflection points either direction. Uh, but personally, I'm not highly concerned, and I actually believe that finally these delivery of tanks and maybe even F-16 fighter jets is actually a signal that the war is closer to over than potentially getting worse. 
So those are just my thoughts on uh, Ukraine and Russia. Remember to take advantage of that 30 per, uh, it's actually uh, the coupon code expiring on the 30th. Best pricing, guaranteed going forward, minimum three months, course member live streams, you get lifetime access. So even in two years, you're like, I wonder what Kevin thinks in his course member live stream this morning. You could join, doesn't matter. You have lifetime access to all the new content that we're adding, whether that's deep dive fundamental analysis work, TA work, fundamentals in real estate. When are we buying for real estate? What are we doing? Where are we buying? Course members get the edge on all of this information. So check that out, linked down below. And email us for a bundle at Kevin at me, Kevin, if you are interested in bundling. Uh, ServiceNow had a nice little plummet yesterday after their, uh, let's see here, after their earnings report. Although they, they, they recovered throughout the rest of the day, they ended up 1.1%. They're flat in pre-market now. Let's take a listen in to see what we have here on CNBC yapping about just ServiceNow. Estimates on the street, not even close. So our guide for 23 is continuing our amazing performance. Yeah, look, I have to agree with you. I mean, I was kind of laughing about what people are looking for. They wanted something and I, you know what? Dude, is this guy actually the CEO or is he like an imposter? Amazing performance. I feel like this is like an imposter with the glasses. It looks ridiculous. McDermott and ServiceNow have such a good product that they're <laughs> head and shoulders above everybody else. So could you explain to our audience why if you bring ServiceNow and you actually may be saving money and that's why you're doing so well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're actually not even dependent on whether IT budgets or budgets are going up because we have the platform, the platform for end-to-end -end digital transformation. So the C-level decision makers that are watching your show right now, if they want to take cost out of the equation, improve productivity and do everything with maximum automation, they're going to go for ServiceNow because this is- the <laughs> Dude, this guy is like a shill for ServiceNow. I know he's the CEO, so that's his job. But damn, dude, this guy knows how to pump it. He knows how to sell. <laughs> hey, CEO, go on CNBC and pump the stock, will you? <laughs> is still the most important thing for digitizing a company. And we also do that. So you can say yes to ServiceNow if it's a cost out or a growth on scenario. And that's why it's become the de facto standard for digital transformation for forward thinking companies around the world. You know, Bill, we, we talked a lot about your interview with Jim uh, over the last, say, quarter and a half, where you initially warned people about longer uh, lead times, uh, some uh, incremental weakness in Europe. And it was jarring. And I'm wondering if you look back on that now, how the pictures evolved since. It's a great question, Carl. I was a straight shooter then, and I'm a straight shooter now. The reality is, at that time, if you remember, it was the second quarter of 2022. The Ukraine war was uh, kind of sinking in. We had an interesting macro with inflation, supply chain dislocation, tightening monetary policy. All this was just starting. And I saw the clouds and I called it out. And now I see a situation where with our company, as an example, we completely pivoted around that new paradigm and changed the go to market to really go after business impact, selling solutions and making sure the customer was front and center in the way we innovated, the way we delivered value, and ultimately the way we performed. And that's why we are in fantastic shape right now because we've been working hard for our customers. All right, so Bill, I got a good sales guy. You gotta give him that, he's a good sales guy. Uh, you know what we might do is we, we might look at uh, some reports from them 
uh, in, let's see here, quarterly filings uh, in the course member live. So uh, I'm just curious. I mean, I, I believe they're profitable, but I, I, it's been a while since I've looked at ServiceNow. They are. Uh, 39 cents of earnings, net income. Oh, that's nominal, though. Net income of 80 mil. Wow, barely. Well, that's quite interesting. Uh, you got quite a high margin product, though. Wow, that's also impressive. All right, we'll do a little bit of deep dive into uh, ServiceNow, just out of curiosity, on uh, in our course member live, which we'll be heading into here momentarily. Uh, come back every single day starting around 4.30 in the morning. I'll actually also be streaming and posting these podcasts on the weekend. I don't actually expect anybody to be here on the weekend, but that's okay. You can play it back whenever you wake up. And you might ask yourself, why would you do it on the weekend? Well, because I have found if you have a routine, it's a lot easier. If you wake up Monday morning and you know the prior days you woke up four hours later, it sucks. So uh, I'll be live streaming every single day for the foreseeable future uh, around this time. And i uh, love to hang out with you and chat. And we will see you again in the next one. Thanks again for watching or listening, and we'll see you soon. Goodbye and good luck.